much does an average Singaporean need to survive in Singapore? What is the minimum income needed for the average Singaporean with different household sizes? According to the study on minimum income standard by our, our two guests today, amongst other authors, the average uh, the minimum income needed for a single parent with one child aged 2 to 6 years old would be about $3,369. And of course, there are other numbers depending on household sizes. So good, good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode 69. And I am absolutely delighted today to have with me on Tetarik with Wallet two returning champions. Both of them have been on Tetarik with Wallet before. I am excited to have them back again. So one is my colleague, Professor Tio Yu Yan, and the other is uh, Dr. Ng Kok Ho, and both of them have devoted a lot of time and effort and energy into the topic that we're going to discuss today, the minimum income standard for Singapore, Singaporeans, and what exactly does it mean, and how do we understand income? How do we understand how much a person needs? And there's more than just a mechanical element behind this discussion. So I will... Bring them on. And so first we're of all, so excited just to uh, just to succeed and get on IG Live. First of all, thank you for creating Instagram just for this. I am, I am very honored. Okay, so let's get to it, right? So the minimum income stand, stand, standard study. What is it? What exactly were your findings? What was it about? What do you want to achieve out of this? What What do you want Singapore and Singaporeans to get out of it? Okay. Uh, well, first, uh, thanks so much, Walid, for having us on your show. Um, and thanks, everybody who is joining now. I see lots of familiar names, and um, it's really nice. Um, just to sort of back up and just give a little bit of context, uh, we started this work partly because we had each been, you know, members of our team had each been doing some work on poverty and inequality. And in the course of doing that work, lots of people ask us, you know, if poverty and inequality are problems, what is the solution? And um, we, we decided that uh, we really need to think about that seriously. And one big piece of the puzzle is really to, to figure out, well, if we're saying people don't have enough, then what is enough? And it is our task really to, one, one big task for us is to figure out what is enough. Um, so what is enough? And, and that was our kind of big picture question. Uh, when converted to research questions, we really wanted to see how much income do people need to meet basic standards of living? How do real incomes in Singapore today fare relative to uh, basic need standards? And then finally, how well do public policy measures fare when evaluated against these uh, what we call MIS baselines. And our approach is really to figure out, you know, how do ordinary people um, think about basic needs um, and draw from the wisdom of ordinary people reflecting, who are reflecting on the social norms of where our baselines are today to do that. So uh, the components of our research are such that, you know, we, we look at, we ask people to talk about and define, you know, what, what are basic needs. And then we try to, we get people to convert those things to actual items. So having defined basic needs as including things like food, clothing, housing, 
opportunities to education, to healthcare, to work-life balance, as well as the ability to have some choices and to participate and to have respect and belonging. Um, we also then ask people, well, if this is a you know hypothetical flat, let's walk through the flat. You know, what kinds of things do we need in the living room, in the kitchen, in the bedroom for going out uh, that would ensure that people can meet those basic needs. And then we went out and we priced the items. Mm. <laughs> and then having priced the spoons and the forks and the sofa and the bed sheets and whatever, we put that together into these household budgets for different kinds of households. Wow. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot in that. Koko, uh, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. Is my audio okay? Yes, it's yes. okay. Yeah. yeah. It's okay, yeah. Right. Um, I briefly left the session earlier, so I don't know uh, when you, you even stopped. Um, but, but, you, you um, can talk about the this... outcomes. Yeah, this this most recent uh, report that we publish is actually the the third uh, in a series, so it doesn't stand on its own. Uh, we published the first report in twenty nineteen. That one looked at older people, sixty five years and older, and then in twenty twenty one we did a follow up study on uh, working age households. So this latest edition of the study is focused on um, adjusting the budgets for inflation. Uh, between 2020 and 22 and then of course the the study sets out to measure how much it costs for households to have a basic standard of living but at the back of all our reports we we also compare these income standards with people's actual wages uh, and various public schemes right so we know uh, how people in different occupations or educational groups uh, fare. And given the very many public schemes, we often hear about what they actually amount to compared to what households need. Right. So if I could read the, the numbers for the 2023 findings, so 3,369 for a single parent with one child, aged 2 to 6 years old, 6,693 for a couple with two children, aged 7 to 12 and 13 to 18, and 1,492 for a single elderly person, 65 years and older. So my, my next question is, uh, when we discuss these things, right, there's a tendency for us to get very mechanical, and even the responses, the refutations will be pretty mechanical as well. And one of the elements that I find to be missing is uh, the, the, the issue of dignity, right? I mean, a lot of people have said it, I think, including uh, Gandhi, I believe that poverty really can has the potential to strip somebody of their dignity. Uh, so what, what do you think about that? When, when, especially as people who, I mean, you guys have done a lot of ground research. Do you find that that is the case or am I misreading the situation? Hmm. What well, the headlines to do with the studies are uh, often focused on the numbers. Uh, so those are what comes to people's minds. But when we talk to ordinary people, so these are the research participants, uh, we found that the way they think about basic needs uh, is a very rich one. So people were able to talk about both uh, material as well as non-material needs. So things like respect, independence and belonging, they kept coming up and people were very articulate about it. Um, dignity that you mentioned, uh, they could 
they could see the link between uh, dignity and things like choice, right? being able to choose to take part in social activities. They talked about it as being linked to independence, um, being able to enjoy respect uh, from those around us, being able to participate in society. Right? So all, all, all these uh, are requirements for a dignified life. So this, that's not to say money is not important, right? or that the participants didn't think money is not important. Money is the precondition uh, to mm. those things that people value and need. Right? So older people need a budget to buy gifts for grandchildren to contribute to their religious communities. The young people talk about needing to get out of Singapore from time to time to, to deal with stress and to see other places. You know, working women need clothing, accessories, so that she can, she can feel like she belongs and participate in the social life of her workplace. And then youth, they talked about needing things like bubble tea, right? because it's a, it's a social activity that allows them to participate in the things that their peers do. So, so that is, is at the heart of the MIS study. Right? It looks at people's material and non-material needs and then converts them into an income. So when we see the number, we mustn't forget all the stuff that lies underneath. Right. So that's interesting. Uh, before I get to Prof Teo, so uh, you mentioned you, money is a precondition basically to participate in this social life. And the, the things you just mentioned, for a lot of Singaporeans, they would say, huh, why is that part of minimum income? You mentioned traveling, bubble tea. Why is that? Isn't that a luxury? Uh, how would you respond to that, that, that strand of criticism? You're including a lot of things which are not part of an actual person's needs, but rather desires. Mm. Uh, These this items that eventually appeared on the list, they, they are anchored uh, by a definition a textual definition of what basic needs are. And that textual definition itself uh, fleshes out some of this material and non-material components of uh, a basic standard of living. So the things that I just talked about, right, independence, respect, social participation, were things that uh, were ordinary members of public said that in Singapore today uh, must be considered basic needs. So they were quite clear at the outset, this was not controversial, you know, that in Singapore today, subsistence, so physical survival, staying alive, is no longer uh, an adequate baseline given the kind of society that we are. So based on the this definition that they constructed, uh, subsequently items were then debated and, and decided on uh, as a way of achieving this textual definition. So this is a way to say some of the, those items that on their own disconnected from this context of the discussions that the participants went, went through, they will strike us as, hey, you don't need this for physical survival, right? But when we brought participants through a process of thinking about what it means uh, to enjoy a basic standard of living in Singapore today, and then what do you need to achieve that, that definition, that standard of living, these are the items that, that they had no problems agreeing on. Okay, thank you. Prof. Yeah. I would just add that, you know, on certain items, because our participants also emphasize choice, it's important to remember, of course, not every single person will like bubble tea, but the purpose of talking about bubble tea and including something like bubble tea in the budget is to say that young people said that they need a budget so that they can go out with their friends, 
and do something social and it's a relatively inexpensive item that allows them to partake in the social life of young people yeah so of course not all young people we're not going to say that everybody has to have exactly right. the same item but it's important for the budget to include items that will allow people to make some choices and allow people very importantly to participate in the social life yeah i guess that's that's the reasoning behind that right it's not about bubble tea but is the the human need to partake in social life, right? And there's almost a sense when people criticize you guys, including that, right? It's there's almost a sense of elitism, right? Oh, for me, I I deserve this, right? I need my social life, right? But for you, if you are of a lower income, you don't really need that. That's not part of your. Uh, it reminds me of a term you you mentioned in your your book. Profitio, which is a differentiated deservedness, right? Uh, which brings me to to the next uh, question. And both of you have written a lot on social policy, on inequality, and it seems to me, however you slice the cake, it you we always go back to the idea of meritocracy as as a root problem. Um, so, is it is is meritocracy indeed the root problem? And is there an alternative? Uh, to meritocracy doesn't seem like there would be something that we could use to replace that in order to elevate inequality or all all of these social issues, social problems that you point out. Hmm. I mean, meritocracy, I think, in Singapore is often used as a shorthand to describe uh, the way we organize society and our social welfare system. So we, if we think of meritocracy as the ideology that people's achievements or the lack of achievements are uh, have have individual uh, reasons, right? Have reasons rooted in the individual rather than social conditions. That thinking is entirely uh, consistent with, or I should say, symptomatic of our very neoliberal approach to welfare, by which I mean our social policies tend to be very narrowly targeted. Um, very uh, residual, meaning it's, it's, it's thought of, uh, we insist that it's, it's uh, help of the last resort and the help given even at the, as a last resort is very limited. So within this model, uh, this very individualistic way of organizing society, people are expected to meet their basic needs through market participation or mainly work. Any social assistance that they can fall back on is very narrow, it covers very few people or very ungenerous. Uh, very low amounts for a very short period of time. This essentially, I think, is what a lot of people uh, are thinking about right, when we say it's a meritocratic society. And of course, there are alternative ways in the real world. There are alternative ways of organizing society and our social welfare based on more uh, solidarity, based on more collective provision rather than individualism and, and market competition. So in very practical terms, it means pooling resources through taxation, and then distributing it across uh, everyone in society through high quality public services, childcare, healthcare, housing, as well as through income protection in, in those phases of our life when, when we expect incomes uh, to fall, like old age, injury and disability, as well as unemployment. Um, so there are real examples, right? Uh, there, are, there are certainly alternatives to, to the way we, we have organized our society so far. Yeah. And I yeah. think when we yeah, when we think about this, we also need to emphasize, you know, that 
uh, or remind ourselves that every everyone lives in society, which is to say everybody's well-being is linked in very important ways to the social conditions yeah, that, that we live in. So the education we have access to, the roads or the buses or trains that we use, the healthcare systems that we tap into, etc. And so when we think about any given individual contributing to the collective, um, it has to be with this view that, that, that all of us who contribute and our families will reap the benefits of public goods at various times in the life course. Yeah? And when everybody living in society is able to meet their needs, we all benefit because it will mean that all the people we are connected to, family, friends, co-workers, neighbours, etc., will have better health, are better cared for and educated, are less stressed and more motivated, and so on. So if there's a baseline below which we would not fall, it would also mean that we would feel more secure. We would know that the various situations that we may face in life, illness, old age, family conflict, that these would not be things that put us in positions of precarity. And I think that, you know, because we live in such a, a society where the anti-welfare discourse is quite strong, where we are so often hearing things like, well, who's going to pay for it? Or this is a slippery slope, or people will become uncompetitive and lazy. Um, I think we really need to, you know, rethink or, or really need to to keep in mind, yeah, that 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 we all benefit from that every everyone benefits from sort of these protections being in place because we all need those services, and uh, given that it's not obvious how social protection can benefit society, leadership really matters. And the work of political leaders should be to galvanize people, to build solidarity among people, to get people to see that they have interest in contributing to the collective resources and that they benefit from a fairer society where everyone can meet their needs. I think that's really, really important. Hmm. So almost as if you preempted my, my next question. So, so basically, <laughs> <laughs> basically what you're saying is social welfare should be pursued at the very least for individual welfare, right? It's not just an altruistic argument, but everyone will benefit ultimately, right? So, and I, you know, one of the things that I think we really should do away as a society is the term self-made, because even if you are a Rex to riches story, right? I mean, you didn't make the roads yourself. You didn't go, you didn't build the schools. There is no such thing as a self-made individual at all, right? Anywhere in society. Yeah, so I, I really like that answer. There's, there's a question here from uh, Prof. Yen Chong. Said, meritocracy in Singapore seems to be a backward justification of economic and social achievement. A question worth asking is what is merit and who gets to define it? Anyone wants to take a step? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there, there are, in fact, in, in, in a lot of my research, this is what I found, that there are, in fact, a lot of qualities that people have that are not necessarily recognized as qualities or recognized as strengths, right? And that the way we, it's, the way it's, merit is defined and merit is rewarded in our society is a, is a pretty, is a pretty narrow uh, way with very specific like milestones and very specific timing. Like if you don't display the right qualities at the right time, there are also not necessarily things that 
uh, get rewarded. And as a lot of research in Singapore as well as other contexts have shown, a lot of the qualities that are um, recognized and rewarded also depend a lot on private resources. Mm. And th this is why, uh, you know, uh, this is why people, uh, parents who have the means, um, feel so strongly, you know, that in absent of, uh, if this is the game and this is, you know, this, this kind of competition is important, then, you know, private investments in, in children becomes a really big part of how mm. to generate so-called merit. How do we get around that the private investment in cho in children? Like, I mean, it's given the situation. I mean, every parent would want to do that, right? How do we get around uh, that? Is there any possible solution around it, which would just then worsen the inequality? Hmm. I mean, you can you can get at this from different angles, right? One. Uh, one is to say that, and again, there are real-world examples. Um, in Northern Europe, where mm. the, there isn't, for example, a huge tuition, private tuition industry, right? That is because they provide universal, high-quality public services, right? So public mm. services that cover everyone of such high quality that they squeeze out the private market. What can a tuition center offer that my school, my public school doesn't? And not just my public school, but all the public schools in our country do that. So what do you leave? There is no gap in the market for, for the private tuition right. center. So we always often say universal high quality public services is right. one way to squeeze out the shadow private industries that come in to, to kind of address people's um, insecurities and worries. And when I say insecurities and worries, this is something that Yogin has mentioned before, right? which is, I mean, no parent is, is happy to be spending so much time and, and money on tuition. Which parent wants to do that? <laughs> but they feel they have to because right. the stakes are very high. The consequences are very serious. They worry that if my child ends up in occupation A, his life will be uh, very different than if he ends up in occupation B. That is, that is to say, uh, which inequality itself is also related to, to people's anxieties about education and so on. So educational inequality, sometimes we hear about um, how schools should uh, um, uh, tweak some of the admission criteria or, or send their students out to, into the community to do community service and so on. All those programs are yeah. fine, right? But the root of educational inequality do, does not really lie in the education system. It's in all of society. Yeah. So in fact, that what what you just said, Koko, right? It can even um, reward people with more resources, right? Because then their children are able to do all of these extra activities, um, even even though it comes from a good place, right? Uh, so there is a question mm -hmm. before before I move on because you you mentioned welfareist uh, policies or more universalist policies, that's the term you used. There's a question from Ahmad. Uh, I, do, I don't think you can see it, or I don't know whether you can see it. What is the panel's perspective on policies to restrict tuition, uh, the tuition industry? Or would the... Would it, the it, sorry, it, yeah, carry on. Yeah, carry on. Uh, I mean, I think getting to, getting to the root of why the industry exists is, is important. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think in general that, that if you want to fix a problem, you need to understand its basis. 
Yeah. So if you if you if you if you look closely at why parents behave the way they do, it's related to what Gokho just said about how they read the outcomes, right? What they think will happen if they don't provide. So in our groups, for example, when we ask parents whether tuition is a basic need, you know, parents were very, very um there was a great deal of angst in this part of, of the discussion, yeah, where they felt like, yes, they do, do think it is because um, the teachers cannot possibly pay attention to so many kids in the classroom that if children fall behind, they will feel um, that, that this will really affect right. their confidence and right. that, that then, you know, they will continue to do more poorly. Um, they want their children to be able to be financially independent in the long run because they also understand that all their needs uh, in the future will need to be met by their participation in employment. Yeah. And so they see that the stakes are very high. And so there's a sense of resonation. You know, we had participants put this really quite uh, well. She said, um, you know, if Singapore, no meritocracy, no PSLE, no exam, then tuition, no need. Lah. Mm. But that's not the world we live. <laughs> okay, thank you. So, so there are there are questions here. Uh, so I'll I'll address that. Uh, I'll ask them in a while. Uh, so I want to move on, right? So, not that I disagree with the two of you, uh, I wouldn't dare. Uh, but let's say I were to channel like a critic, uh, and I would say, uh, oh. You you are speaking about this, but ultimately, right? Who pays for this? Resources are finite and limited. So who will pay? Wouldn't, wouldn't your suggestions squeeze the middle class even further? You already talked about raising taxes, right? Um, and then, you know, in Singapore, if you were to raise taxes, we are a small economy, then investors will not come in and so on. So is this a practical solution for a small, open economy like Singapore? Um, when it comes to public services, right, we are already paying for it in, uh, in some way. Right? So it's not a question of to raise taxes or not raise taxes. It's not that if you don't raise taxes, then there is no need to pay. Right? We are all always already paying for it. The only question is how. So in so-called cheaper welfare states like ours, right, if uh, public services are often not fully fully uh, uh, funded through through public finances. It just means that people pay more out of their pockets, right? And then those who want and can afford better may even go private, right? They buy private services at a premium, right? Just think private preschool and and so on. And then at the other end, uh, those who cannot even afford uh, public uh, subsidized public services, they may opt for cheaper options that do not fully meet their needs. So you can think about informal childcare arrangements, for example. They also pay. They pay for it in terms of sacrificing some aspects of their needs. I mean, care is a, is a great example, right? Because we like to think of it as free, right? care for family members and so on, just because it takes place at, in, in the home, within a family. But actually when a parent, so usually mothers, right, stop work to care for the children, she is paying, right? She is paying by foregoing her income and not just in the present, she is paying by foregoing her retirement savings, right? So, so the point is that someone always pays. Right. When we say that we want to limit state support, 
what we are saying is that we want individual households to pay. And in the case of households who can't afford to pay, we are okay that they sacrifice their needs. We like to talk about family support versus state support. But in reality, where do family resources come from? Right? The family can only provide support if they have the resources. And that means decent wages and, and public services that take up a smaller portion of their work income. Then they can start storing resources. In the end, we can't talk about family support without talking in, uh, firstly about public provision and then the other thing, which is wages. Right. I, I was saying earlier, you know, about uh, the amount of uh, angst that people, that parents bring to this topic. And I think um, on the whole in our, in this research, as well as in, in other research they're doing, we, we see a lot of anxiety among people that have to do with um, insecurity. We're feeling that parents feeling anxious that their children cannot keep up in school and that they have to pay for tuition. Older people anxious about poor health and healthcare costs and worried about burdening their children in the future. Young people who are worried that they cannot afford housing of their own in the future. So because people are extremely aware that they have to take care of themselves on all fronts, uh, this shapes all kinds of behaviors that they, they take, turning to tuition, keeping a close eye on children's education, buying private insurance, right. taking safer options when it comes to jobs and careers. So th these costs to mm. families uh, really go beyond the financial. Right. The financial part is very important, but in addition to that, it costs something to family lives. Right family harmony, it costs something to mental well-being, uh, it costs something to our sense of uh, who we are relative right. to other members of society, to our sense of solidarity, uh, it costs something to living a full and creative life, you know, so I think the absence of social security has really meant a huge cost to individuals and families, particularly to middle and lower income ones. So to say that uh, the alternative is more, more costly, I think, is, is, is really obscuring how costly it is now. Right. So this, this study and research of yours is really more than about financial uh, security, right? It's really about emotional, mental, spiritual, community. Everything is related to this, right, based on uh, the answer you just gave. And I, I also... Uh, we, we are also very selective right, as a society about asking the question, who pays for it? Right? I've never asked, I've never heard somebody ask the question, right, who pays for our defense, right? Not that I'm saying we should reduce defense spending or what, I'm just saying that I've never heard that question being asked, right? And we, it's always about priorities. So, but thanks, that, that was a, a full answer, I thought. Okay. So it took us 32 minutes, but I have to ask uh, the next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the next question, um, what was the government's quibble with, uh, with your study uh, and how would your response be? And I think, first of all, I also need to acknowledge that the fact that they responded in that way, I think uh, it shows that your study is worthy of a response and it's great that they decided to respond that way right you know because there could be other ways like POFMA or whatever it is but we would always be happy if this is how the government engages with academic work right so what exactly uh, was their quibble and how would you respond to it okay um so there were a few there were a few different um critiques 
um, from the Ministry of Finance and, and um, Ministry of Social and Family Development and Ministry of Manpower, yeah, I think. Um, so the <laughs> critiques were, number one, that these are not needs. These are, I quote, what individuals would like to have. Number two, that because we have higher income participants that this skewed the findings. Number three, that there were discretionary items such as jewelry, perfume, and holidays. Number four, that lower income families receive more help than we assume. Um, yeah, let, let, let's stick with those okay. four. And, and uh, also in response to our recommendations, they also had some quibbles. Go home. Mm, yeah. Actually, actually, they were they were a bit friendlier, um, more polite this time than they were in twenty twenty one, which is strange because it's the same study, but they they are a bit friendlier. So, uh, we made three explicit recommendations. Uh, I think they accepted the principle of it on 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 the first two recommendations. We talked about uh, we recommended that a living wage be seriously considered. We haven't really discussed it. We can talk about it later. Um, this, they, they support this intent of paying a decent wage, uh, but they, they argue over the best way to do it. We recommended improving retirement income adequacy, and they also acknowledge that currently in the, in the current system, some people are not able to fully benefit from the CPF system and so on. So mm. on those two counts, they, they do accept the premise of our recommendations. But the third one, they was the third one was was I think conveniently ignored. That was the one about policy practices, right? Indexing, so pegging your policy parameters and features to inflation. They, they did not address that. Mm. Um, and then using transparent, rigorous benchmarks when you finally do update your policies. No comment. Yeah, but but otherwise, uh, they, they there is there is there are some areas of agreement this time. Okay. Mm. So. Can we answer? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, to, to answer the critiques, I think we first, first, I think we need to return to our methodology to emphasize that it's very important to take seriously how ordinary people view basic needs. So all the things that we've talked about so far this evening are not things we made up on our own. Yeah, the fact that basic needs are complex, and they're, they're layered and they have these elements that are more than about mere survival. All of these things are things that came from participants. Now, the methodology we use includes having a mixed group in terms of socioeconomic background uh, because we want to make sure that we don't end up either with very high budgets or very low budgets. Okay, so we have to have a mixed group. We also have to facilitate the groups in particular ways so that we can create space for all participants to speak. So in 2021, the, our focus groups, 15% of our participants lived in private properties, but 18% lived in public rental flats. In practice, this, mean, this meant that each focus group had only one to two persons from either private housing or rental flats, uh, within this group of about eight persons, each focus group of about eight persons. As for educational profile, 82% of our participants uh, between 25 and 54 years old had post-secondary education, which is comparable to 79% of all Singapore residents in the same age group in 2020. So the educational profile is closely reflective of, of the general population. Yeah, so, so there is no 
uh, it doesn't. It certainly does not reflect a high education, high income uh, kind of uh, uh, budget. Yeah. Right. Um, we also use case studies. So we have this group of people. They are from mixed income education backgrounds. But also, we always tell them, okay, you're not just talking about yourself. You're thinking about this case of Madam right. M or Miss K or Chao Z. Yeah, and you need to be. It's not about you. It's about thinking. You know what is what? What could be considered basic for a person in this kind of household? Um, it, we also, I mean, it's a good question to ask whether people are talking about needs or whether they are talking about wants. And this was something we were also very um, mindful of in in running the focus group discussions and. Uh, we really wanted to make sure yeah, that the budget that we end up with is a budget we can defend to the public. Yeah, that, that will not be seen like, oh, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a fantasy kind of budget, right? So often when people say, okay, this item is a need, we will ask people, well, what happens to Madam M or Mr. K or Chao Z if they don't have this thing? Yeah, because to say that something is a need is to say that if they don't have this thing, some harm will be done. Right. Some serious deprivation exists. Yeah. And they will tell us that if they don't have a mobile phone, how are yeah. they supposed to live in Singapore? Yeah. yeah. They cannot contact anyone. They cannot, you know, read the news. They cannot be on social media. I mean, those are all things that are necessary for participating in society today. So of course they need it. If a child doesn't have a tablet or, a, or, a com or access to computer in the context of today, uh, they would not be able to, to study, right. right? They would not be able to do what during the pandemic, they would not be able to do home-based learning. So of course, it's a big deprivation if that thing is not on the list. Um, if children don't have a budget or older people don't have a budget to buy a birthday gift so that they go, can attend, you know, another person's, uh, another child's party, they would be left out, yeah? They would be left out in important ways. Again, they cannot participate in important ways. So. We, we push people in that way to tell us, you know, what, what is the rationale for saying this is a thing that is a, a need. Uh, and often participants would challenge one another, you know, because we, we do these focus group discussions for so many hours. Uh, at mm. some point, someone will be like, oh, are you sure that is a need, not mm. a one? You know, they will also start to challenge one another. Right. And anything and that ends up on the budget has to be there after consensus is made. It implies that there will be things that they will say, no, we cannot, we cannot agree. This cannot be considered basic in Singapore today. So air conditioning is, is a good example of that, where they actually deliberated quite a bit. Um, and, you know, people talked about um, increasing temperatures. They talked about the haze from a couple of years ago. Um, but then they ended up saying, no, we cannot, we cannot say that this is a basic need. Yeah, uh, there were certain things like cars, for example, that were not even on the table. Nobody even raised it because nobody thinks that in the Singapore context that could be considered a basic need. Mm. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Did you want to say anything more? Or? Go. Yeah. Mm, there is, I mean, there is, uh, I hesitate over this because this is, technical and a little bit drier. But uh, one of the criticisms is that uh, we 
we don't account for the assistance given to low-income families. So, um, I'll just... Mm, shall uh, I continue? I, I can continue. Yeah, please. please. On his behalf. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think Koho was saying about um, the critique that we don't take into account uh, government assistance. Uh, so, maybe it's worthwhile um, explaining a little bit how we, we did take into account of government assistance in, in our report. Uh, so, where there are subsidies for public services that are universal, meaning everybody receives the same amount, and where it's automatic, meaning we don't need to apply, uh, these are deducted from the item prices during the budget calculations. Um, so, polyclinic fees, for, for, for example, you know, where is, there are some automatic subsidies, we build it into our pricing. Uh, where subsidies are income tested, meaning uh, whether or how much support there is depends on the individual or the household income. Then we assume median income so that the budgets are applicable to most of society. Koho, do you want to talk about housing? Yeah, housing is one particular one, right? So where there are subsidies that are not universal, uh, which means they are means tested, we need to assume a certain amount of income in order to do the calculations, right? So one of the quibbles is that we assume median income. So this is the income level right smack in the middle of the distribution. To us, that's perfectly reasonable so that the amount of housing subsidies reflects what what the typical household in, in society receives, right? So the criticism that actually the lowest income households receive a lot more, but to assume maximum rates of subsidies, which in fact only are received by a very small number of very low income households, I mean, that would, that would underestimate the household budgets and create a very misleading picture of, of living costs. Do, right. do you so, have a number um, on how many people, uh, how, what's the percentage of people that receive the highest number of subsidies? The rate oh, it's a, it, uh, it's, a, it's, a whole, it's a whole range, you know, and then we use the, the calculator, uh, the yeah. HDB's website to calculate. Um, so it's, it's not categories, it's a, it's a scale. Right, right, okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Mm, yeah, okay. Mm. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so sorry I keep dropping off. No, no. I think someone doesn't no, it's want okay. to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're being censored. And not by me, by the way. No. <laughs> so, uh, so this this idea, idea, it comes up over and over again. I think you, you guys are challenging the country and the government and Singaporeans to rethink what it means to have minimum uh, income, right? Because you are including the human element far more into this, right? I mean, in your answers, you think about the social life, which anyone who has elderly parents will know that whatever you just said is true, right? As in, it's for a human being to survive in old age, you need far more than the basic needs. Because the way we think about it is just food on the table, that's it, right? But I think, uh, Prof. Teo, you mentioned in your book, this is what inequality looks like. One of the criticisms Singaporeans always mention about people who live in social housing is that, oh, you're so poor and yet you still have a TV, right? Well, actually, a TV is much more of a necessity for, for people there than, uh, than people uh, in higher income households because uh, if they have to go to work and that's how uh, uh, they take care of their children and so on. So I think it requires sort of a mindset shift uh, in in thinking about income and I mean I definitely also uh, there were some things that 
I, I sort of assumed that these were not needs. And after reading your report, I was thinking, oh, actually, that's the wrong way of looking at it. Um, so, and uh, there's a question here, and this is a bit methodolo methodological by NASA. Were there any striking differences in the response from participants across different social classes? If so, how did you aggregate these variations? Hmm. Shall I go? Um, it's not aggregation, right? We, I know we are tempted to talk about an average, right? Or an aggregate. We don't really, um, the way to think about it, the logic behind it is not met a mathematical one at all. Uh, in a way, the process itself is a very social one, right? Uh -huh. So it's not about adding things right. up or about adding up and then dividing. And there was, there was one particular session where one very enthusiastic participants, as sometimes appear in focus groups, said that because they couldn't agree on something, and then someone said, why don't we take a vote? And then I had to stop them and say, hey, no, 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 we don't do voting. <laughs> but he said, that's the fastest one, let's just take a vote. And I had to put my foot down and say, no, no voting. Right? If we were to do voting, let's just do a survey. Right. There's right. no need to do a focus right. group. Right? Right. Right. So I say the process is a social one because everyone has to listen to other participants, which right. if you take part in a survey, you don't. Huh? You listen to other people, you process it. If you disagree, you must say so. You must explain your own views so other people hear from you. And through that process, you must come to an agreement. So this process itself is a social one. I mean, we don't talk about it a lot, but we, we enjoy it uh, very much ourselves. And so do the participants. There were some sessions where, where after one of these focus groups, we tidy up, right? We keep the flip charts, our stationery and so on. And when we leave the venue, there was one group of participants that were still at the lift landing chatting, right? Because they wanted to continue talking to each other yeah. about it. There is something in the process of uh, research like this, right? There's participatory, there's consensual, where you need to listen as well as speak and try to understand each other. Uh, that is that is how we arrive at these budgets, right? So not so much aggregating, but negotiating, understanding, and agreeing. So this, what what you just said, Koko, right? This is quite un-Singaporean, right? That you're, uh, this this data gathering process is a social one, right? You are requiring requiring Singaporeans to have a paradigm shift of sorts, right? Thinking about data in a different way. This is heavy lifting, mm -hmm. isn't it? <laughs> I said, you and you go, yeah. I, you know, we before we embarked on this research, and and well, let you all know this well as well that you know before research actually gets done, there's so much time spent just just conceptualizing it, right? And when you are working in a team as we did, um, we spent a lot of time worrying whether it would work in the Singapore context, because this methodology is a methodology that we learned from a UK team that has been doing it for many years. They are um, at the University of Loughborough uh, Centre for Research on Social Policy. And we had read their reports, we had read their work, we had talked to them, we spent hours and hours sort of like figuring out, you know, how to adapt the method methodology to the Singapore context. And one of the things that we were worried about was, well, if we put people in a room together, will they be able to come to consensus? Will they be willing to do this exercise as we ask them to do it, you know, where they have to kind of 
think about what is basic for everybody in society. They have to discuss these issues that sometimes can get very abstract, you know, can ordinary people do it? And the answer is yes, you know, and you know that that we were we were not completely sure when we started, but what we found in the process is that yes, if you if you set up the the space for it, meaning if you give people the tools for it, the time for it, if you walk people through, you know, how to do it, um, people are extremely right. capable. And, they, right. and there's something about the exercise actually did not take that long to explain to people what it is we were trying to get them to do, what the tasks were. Um, it was, there, there was something actually fairly intuitive about it. And all the things we've said about basic needs, you know, about belonging and respect and dignity these are things ordinary people say right 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 yeah it's not it's not it's i think if we have if we if we how shall i say if we take more seriously what ordinary people can do and are capable of doing and and how ordinary people feel and take seriously their experiences of society we can learn a great right. deal about singapore trust trust the average singaporean more than uh, than we usually do right uh, so there are a couple of questions here. One is, was there anything included in the MIS budget that surprised either of you? That you didn't anticipate hmm. at the start that this would be? Hmm. I must say, just travel. like you, Yen, yeah, travel no, for go you. Ahead, go, you ahead. go ahead, go ahead. I mean, like you mentioned, we, we read the findings from the UK study and then we think, but they are different society, you know, would, would Singaporean citizen and the, the, issue, the items that become controversial are so different in every society. We thought a holiday might be controversial, nothing. Right. We thought tuition might be controversial, nothing. People just, by nothing I mean that people just passed it, they agreed and yeah, right. like with a collective shrug, they were just focused on telling us the rationale. Right. Um, so after a few of these surprises, I, I, I don't think I had a, in, in my mind, items that I, I did not have a list that I thought would or would not appear in, in, in the, uh, that they will agree on in the end. Um, I don't know, Yojen, you were, you were saying holidays. Huh, maybe? Oh, oh, I was going to say, you know, that uh, the, the thing on, the discussion on holiday was fairly interesting to me that, um, because it's not entirely intuitive that a holiday would be would be part of a basket that's called basic needs right, right? and so i i did not expect participants to quite so easily see why it would be and they talked about how um because our first research was older people right they talked a lot about how well life is very stressful in singapore and and they think about the young people they, they when they talk about it actually they often refer to younger people even though we were asking them to talk about older people's needs they talk about how in this in singapore society today since so many people are traveling all the time and work is so stressful if it's not on the list that implies nobody can ever go on a holiday and they they simply could not accept that that to be the case and they, they often said you know especially young people they have to go out and and occasionally you know de-stress and occasionally see other parts of the world so that they they can be on pace with with others you know and and so it's it's that there, there were certainly things that i thought we would have a more i thought the singapore report would end up being um 
I guess what it, what is what I'm looking for sort of more austere than the UK budget, um, but it was actually quite comparable right. in, in, in in terms of the the qualitative stuff. I, are like you people saying, say are important? Are you saying that Singapore is not unique? Right. <laughs> 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 well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that is uh, something for us to take. We always like to emphasize, overemphasize our uniqueness, right? But yeah. Ultimately, we we are not different from many other societies, I suppose. So, Farain asks, what uh, what are the essential mindset shifts that we need to consider for a more equitable Singapore? And whose mindset? Hmm. Huh, I was going to ask yeah. you that question. <laughs> I mean, I, I if you ask me, I, I I of course think that it's policy mindsets that needs to shift. You know? We often say we are a pragmatic society, then let's be open-minded about what works, what has worked, as well as what hasn't worked. Right? Let's, let's, let's look at the options, let's study them systematically, let's look at the results, let's share the results with the public, and then let's make our collective minds up about, about what, what, is, what is a good uh, approach and what isn't. And, and I said, this is an ideological issue, right? It's Indeed. almost like there's an ideological men mental block yeah. when it comes to thinking about policy. There are some corners that people just cannot turn, right? So the until they decide to turn, then suddenly they find there are no ghosts right around the, <laughs> around the bend. And and the, the the clearest example is the progressive wage model. I mean, for many years, I mean, researchers and and others who are concerned about low wages were advocating um, that. Uh, low wage, the stagnation of wages at the bottom of the distribution were a problem. And historically, there's this policy mindset uh, where we are very hesitant about wage interventions. The argument is that even low wage workers' situations are improving uh, and that all wages must always be tied to productivity. And if you increase wages, consumers will not be willing to pay. Right? Those was always the defense, right? But in 2021, right, when the mood flipped, right? Suddenly, you hear policymakers repeating what to me right, are critics' arguments. And then suddenly, we are told that actually the gap between low and median wages are not improving enough, that productivity is not enough to lift wages. And actually, and then suddenly, we are told there's been a survey that shows that consumers are willing to pay. Right? Um, we, are, we hear these arguments and repeated back to us. Um, so th there are instances right, that if ideology, that ideological mental blocks right, can, can just just be let go of, um, then we can make, make pragmatic decisions that, that actually work. I think, thank you for, for saying that. I think we, we like to assume that in Singapore, our policies are never ideological, right? Uh, when it's, uh, it's hardly ever true. There's, there are deep ideologies behind many, and not that it's wrong, I think being ideological doesn't mean being not pragmatic, but the refusal to admit that there is an ideological bent or decision-making behind it as if it's just of pure cost and benefits. Even what you view as a cost or benefit is dependent on your ideological predisposition to begin with. Right? Uh, so there's a question by, uh, by Jonathan. Should there be a greater weightage given to the lower uh, socioeconomic status uh, compared to the higher socioeconomic status considering that that the high ses will be less affected i'm assuming jonathan you're talking about uh, the focus group discussion participants in your study uh, in the mis was there weightage given to the 
lower higher weightage given to the lower SES or no um, the the methodology is you know most focus group discussions are, are about drawing in representatives of different groups and then using that as a quick way to gather the data of of those as representations of those groups our focus group discussions are really about getting people together to achieve consensus on what they think is a basic standard of living for everybody in society. So it is meant to be, it is meant to be something that we can say should be basic needs for everybody in society. So it's, it's not a, it's not a budget only for low income persons or middle income persons or high income persons. Okay. Right. Thank yeah. you. It's a, it's, so a it, it's a baseline below which no one should. Fall. Right. Okay. And the living wage is $2,990 on average, right? That's the living wage. So gross monthly yes. would be 2556 And this is the target that no one should, uh, should fall below, right? Um, so my final set of questions, I don't say my final question, final series of questions, right? So... Um, what is next in your step uh, uh, in in the what is the next stage of uh, research and you mentioned just now Koko, that the government is friendlier uh, uh, their reaction to your report is friendlier this time and i guess that's a that's a positive sign um what is next and what is it that you would like to see happen in the short to medium term hmm. um because we've now done this for quite a number of years, right? We, we started thinking about it actually in 2016, and then now we are three reports on. We've done a few launches. We've seen how the government responds, uh, also how uh, the media respond and how the public respond. And, and we see movement. I mean, there's been a lot right. of movement in, in, the, right. in the discourse. And, and in case you, you haven't already seen it, a friend just sent me a link that, that uh, apparently they debated this in parliament today. Yeah. But as uh, yeah, ST says that Parliament debates NTU study on income adequacy. So sorry, uh, you take the hit this time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we take turns how we take turns. So um, <laughs> so um, I hope it keeps moving. But when I say moving, it means that people's discussion is advancing. Right, we no longer need to revisit some of the old territory. Uh, we and we hope we continue to see that. I, I, I know that there are journalists who are very interested to write about these stories and of course they operate in, in under challenges and difficult conditions themselves. But I hope as a society, you know, when the public talk about it, when the media report it, you know, when the government engage with us over these findings, we, we can keep trying to think about it properly. I said at our report launch, I hope by now after we have done this we have rehearsed this process of releasing results and then and they see that people can type digest it and think about it and make sense of it um without a huge public backlash i hope the the message that we all take away from it is that we can we can we can think and talk about these findings and that there is no need to panic that that for me is in an, in an i hope to see this change of mood uh, continuing to happen right prof uh um, I think we would also like to continue to engage in various ways with the public more generally to kind of open up the conversation about what it means to flourish in today's Singapore, uh, what it means 
what development and economic growth was for and who should, you know, and how should we think about ensuring that everybody, you know, is able to, um, in this very wealthy country, yeah, attain basic standards of living. Um, I, I hope that more of the vocabulary around dignity and living wages uh, will, will spread, that more people will think about these concepts and uh, I suppose think about how to apply it in different ways in the, in the, in the areas that they are concerned about and in the areas that they're working in. Um, and I think, as I, as I mentioned earlier, when, you know, doing this MIS research really deepened our appreciation for, for people's capacity, for, for people's capacity to come together to discuss serious things, work through disagreements, arrive at some consensus. And, and we, we, we feel that um, that's a really valuable thing that I that I hope also other researchers will will um, will will do and 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 so that the the research environment that we're in will also grow. We hope to be part of that growth um, and that development of of taking seriously um, ordinary people's um, views and experiences experiences of the world. Um, so I, I guess in terms of like in practical terms, you know, in terms of the work we, that we do, we'll continue to do more podcasts and interviews and commentaries and, and now we're, you know, first time IG live. <laughs> um, and, and, and we hope that we hope that in all these ways, I mean, this is not exactly our natural environment. So, so, so yeah, you know, I'm, hopefully people will forgive us our, 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 uh, I'm sure they will. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's great if, if, if some of this message can, can continue to spread and we feel, you know, we always feel very encouraged actually after each report, because we, we hear from lots of members of the public. We hear a lot of encouraging messages from colleagues and friends and students. Um, and I think that there is something about uh, this work um, that that resonates with people. Right. So I have the. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Actually, I should also say that that of course beyond that, we hope for actual policy changes as well around <laughs> wages, around uh, schemes, especially for older persons and lower income persons, uh, and also you know that there are clear criteria regular checks and clear criteria for looking at whether schemes are uh, working or not working. Okay. okay, thank you. I have the Straits Times article, I mean the online article the, the in front of me that Coco reference. Parliament debates on what constitutes basic needs after NTU report on adequate minimum incomes. Seems like a misleading artic, uh, headline, but, but basically it was a PAP uh, MP that asked the uh, MSF whether MSF would consider adjusting financial assistance or at least do its own study to determine the level of living wage. And I think that's, that's great, right? The fact that your research is being debated in parliament and I think it's something, it's the envy of other academics like myself, I think. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting in both your responses. The first thing you, you talked about was discourse changes and then you go on to policy. I think a lot of Singaporeans underestimate the power of discourse when 
when we are talking about they always ask oh, what does talking achieve right i want to see this but this is the necessary step before all of that right changing mindsets putting pressure because you know frederick douglas said power has never uh, considered itself without demand right never have and never will right uh, so i think uh, it's it's really useful to have this environment of of discourse and and challenging and debating and negotiating and arguing uh, are there any final words from the two of you <laughs> you yeah, show it that's that thing that we were thinking about <laughs> about saying i i think i think can say lah which is that which is that you know, we in our a research report of the, the kind that we write, we try to keep the length fairly short. I, I know most people don't think it's short, it's a 60 pages, but we try to, it's not a lot of space to talk about a study that is so interesting and rich. It's only in occasions like this, so thanks to Wallet for giving us the space to do this, that we can talk about, you know, it's not aggregation, yeah. it's negotiation and things like that. But in our report, we have no space to say that. Okay. So it's been on our minds for a while that we should probably now also six, seven years into this study, sit back and reflect and think about some of the, what this study has brought out about our society, about policies, right, about all of us, right, and what, what we think is, a, is a, what we think about human flourishing in Singapore, to, to, to reflect on some of those, those lessons and to put it into a book, right, because there will never be a report that has space for this. Wow. Um, and, and so, we, so this is a soft launch, will, Soft launch of the book. <laughs> <laughs> this is a soft pre 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 pre. Yeah, cannot soft launch a product that doesn't exist yet. But you, we we want to doesn't very much want to do. Exists in parts. It does. It does. It does. So we 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 want to do a book where we can talk about some of the actually some of the bigger and really more important and enduring issues behind a fi those figures that change. Every two years, right? We right. keep chasing these figures, but there are there are lessons. I think there are more enduring than that, and we want to put those things together. Okay. Prof, your final word. Oh, in the meantime, you can read all our writings and listen to various podcasts, um, and even watch a little cartoon video that we produced, that we commissioned in 2019 uh, on our web website, whatsenough.sg. Okay. Thank um, you so much. I want to, yeah, sorry. Thank yeah, you yeah, so yeah, much, yeah. Walid, for no. this opportunity. No, I really Thanks, wanted Walid. to thank you for, for, for three things. One is for coming on this show. I really appreciate it. For creating Instagram accounts just for this. Second <laughs> of all, really for the work that you do. I think it's such a such important work and i think i personally have witnessed the the public discourse public mood ch uh, change over the years and it shows us how valuable academic work can be because academic work often is detached from society and i think you guys have shown sort of a blueprint how to make it uh, relatable and finally what i would like to thank you for is to make the announcement about your book on this show so that's an exclusive <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so pressure. much. <laughs> so I look forward to having a second episode with the two of you when the book comes out. All right. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much, Wale. Thank, Thank you. Everyone. Good night, everyone. Thank Bye -bye. you. Good night.